0: this is fintech takes the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest fintech trends news and ideas i'm alex johnson creator of the fintech takes newsletter your host and self-confessed fintech nerd let's go hello and welcome back to fintech recap my name is alex johnson i'm the creator of fintech takes and joining me the breaker of fintech news, don't try to hide a UDAP violation from him, the publisher of fintech business weekly, Jason Mikula. Hey, Jason. Hey, I feel like it's been a lifetime of fintech news since I last saw you, and that was less than a month ago. I was sort of told that fintech was going to slow down post-money 2020, and yet my life doesn't feel any slower or calmer. How is this possible? Uh, You know, I opted out of commenting on the open ai situation (laughs) (laughs) because i felt i had nothing intelligent or informative to add so i like if i knew how to mute things in twitter or screen that out i would well i have to say um there are little vignettes you get where it's like oh twitter's not real life i forgot for a second and like this is a big one for me because like there were people in tech circles who I I follow so many more sort of generalized tech people on Twitter than I kind of thought I did. And you don't notice it until they all become unified in their fascination with a particular subject. And this was maybe the most intense version of that I've ever seen on Twitter where like no one was talking about anything else all weekend. There really was nothing intelligent to say. I think like Kara Swisher had like actual information the folks at the information were doing some reporting. I saw something from the Atlantic. Like there were some journalists who were doing work on the story and then everyone else was just like weighing in for no reason. And it was weird because I mean, I know that Sam Altman is kind of a cult like figure in Silicon Valley these days, but like there were folks who were comparing that they were like, this is the single most important day in the history of Silicon Valley. Like just like, There was a lot of hyperbole and, you know, it ends with the guys moving over to Microsoft and Microsoft winning because apparently under Nadella, that's what happens. So, you know, dramatic and interesting, but not that important. Maybe, I don't know. I'll probably regret saying this, but uh, (laughs) Silicon Valley, you know, I think has always had a very inflated sense of self-importance as far as, you know, being the center of the world. And, And then you go, you know, other places in the US or other places in the world and realize like... The world keeps spitting, even if the board member or the CEO got kicked out. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, i like, you know, I always judge it by like, could I explain this story to my mom in a way that she would understand? And like, this is like a classic. It would take me twice as long as being worth it to even come close to being able to explain why this is important. And at the end of the process, I'd get to it and she'd be like, so is it important I'd be like, actually, no, sorry, I, I don't know why I spent all that time doing that. And, and we've already spent enough time on it today. <laughs> I strenuously I strenuously agree. Let me ask you one other question, speaking yeah. of in other places of the country outside of Silicon Valley. So as an American living abroad, my understanding is that you at least take some of your American traditions with you. Is Thanksgiving one of those? Thanksgiving is actually my favorite holiday. Uh-huh. I really like eating. Uh, yeah, so well, it's really, <laughs> it, it, it's very consistent with eating. Um, <laughs> so yes, I this will be I think my maybe third year hosting Thanksgiving since I've moved here. I missed one at some point. You cannot get a turkey in the grocery store because why would you be able to? Sure. Uh, so sure. I have yeah. Why well, well, have my... <laughs> a giant frozen bird just sitting in the store? Right. Exactly. I have ordered my turkey. I will pick it up on saturday and then i will host a sunday thanksgiving since obviously it's not a holiday here however black friday i mean it's not a day off work but it is a thing which i always find hilarious because it's like in my mind it's like thanksgiving black friday are like conjoined but like they still have black friday here even without the thanksgiving part interesting and i'm hoping that they don't like trample people quite the same way we do in the u.s is it slightly more relaxed and polite I have never been and I don't plan on going, but I assume based on what I know yes. of the Dutch people that yes, it is. Yes, that would make sense. That would make sense. And then um, my last question for you on Thanksgiving topics before we segue into fintech, where in the sort of regional side dish, I saw you tweet about the where you're from in the U.S. dictating what kind of sides belong at Thanksgiving. Where do you fall in that? You're Midwestern. So like yes. you're right yep. in the middle of this. So growing up, we always did green bean casserole, which okay. is disgusting, but is yes. is one of my favorites. Sure. And then also just like rolls or some kind of bread. Yeah. My mom was a big fan of like sweet potatoes that involves like brown sugar and like spiced rum and all kinds sure. of other things. No mushrooms. No um, marshmallows though. That's gross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My better half was lobbying for mac and cheese, and I'm like, this is not like. In my family lexicon, even though my mom is from the South. Right. But from what I gather based on that map and some heated discussion online on Twitter (laughs) was that doing mac and cheese as a Thanksgiving side dish is like a distinctly Southeast regional phenomenon. Yes, yes, yes. Well, the mac and cheese one was totally weird to me. Like I've never even come in like general proximity to a Thanksgiving that's done mac and cheese. So that's well outside my experience. I will say that map, I think, was too generous in lumping the Rocky Mountain region and the Mountain West in with the West Coast. Yeah, you'll get all about salad in the map. Yeah. And I was like, salad has no place at Thanksgiving. Like, no, 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 no. So we really belong more in like a Midwestern area. Like we do casseroles, rolls. Uh, My dad's a huge fan of sweet potatoes with marshmallows on top. That's the thing that we do. So that's much more like our speed. (sighs) Jason made like a look with like a disgusted look on his face for Mm -hmm. those who can't see when I mentioned marshmallows on sweet potatoes. So, you know, we'll have to compare notes uh, after the holiday. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. We will share some swap some recipes. Let us now swap some fintech stories. Jason, you have a, a meaty one to start with. Yeah. Where do I even start? So, I mean, the title I wrote for this was fintech reckoning picks up steam And, you know, to Alex's point, I was also hoping that after Money 2020, we might have like a peaceful glide path towards the holiday and towards the new year. But that has not been the case. In the last couple of days, couple of weeks, there have been a handful of consumer-facing fintechs either shutting down and or pivoting to B2B or to infrastructure plays. So the two most recent ones being H.M. Bradley, which for those who aren't familiar, was kind of a high yield savings, non-bank fintech app. It also had a credit card. And I think just like over the weekend, Pedal, which is a cash flow underwritten credit card, sort of a credit card for people, thin file, no file, new to credit, that could be college student, could be immigrant, could be recently divorced person who doesn't have his or her own credit history. Fortune reported that it was put up for sale and claimed that it could shut down if a buyer isn't found, sources I spoke to did not agree with that assessment and said that even if a sale, well, one, that there were multiple offers on the table, and even if a deal were not reached, that they'd be be able to continue operating until they sort of figured out what was next. And then there's a slew of others that are maybe, you know, second or third tier. I mean, obviously, Mint, you know, everyone had their RIP Mint moment, Uh, If I still lived in the U.S., that would make me sad because I used it up until the moment I left the country. Ness, which was like a wellness-focused card startup, shut down. I've heard that Extra, which I believe is a credit-building startup, is most likely shutting down. Braid, Catch, Uh, a company called Status Money, which I don't think anyone except for me has ever heard of, and I only know that because a former colleague of mine from Goldman went to start that with a friend of his echo shut down its consumer fiat banking app in favor of some other weird crypto stuff and i'm sure there's like a handful more that i'm forgetting so i mean i guess like the story or the question is is the worst behind us or is there more pain ahead and you know what are other possible impacts and and i mean you know me alex I'm thinking on the sort of banking as a service partner banking space, which, you know, some of these companies worked with plenty of other, you know, even smaller startups that we probably haven't heard of work with, you know, where are we on the cleanse of, of unprofitable fintechs? Yeah. I mean, I think there's more to come, honestly. I mean, I, the, some of the more successful ones like a pedal or an HM Bradley, or, you know, at least more sort of notable ones that we've sort of been paying attention to like catch or eco i think all of those ones i mean those are just the ones we hear about right i think there are probably a whole bunch that never rise to the level of really getting a lot of attention in the press but are probably also being shut down and i i do think we are i don't know probably right in the middle of this wave of um sort of shutdowns and consolidations you know i mean I think the takeaway and, you know, H.M. Bradley is a good example. I wrote about them in my newsletter today. You know, the model just wasn't very sustainable. Right. And in fact, Zach, the CEO, uh, sort of was writing a little bit about this on Twitter over the weekend. You know, it's just not a model that made a lot of sense. Now, if there was a path where they could have gotten a bank charter and become a bank and started doing lending and other things, that'd be different. But If you're going to start a neobank and the focus is on giving really high interest rates to savers to attract as many deposits as possible, well, the only way you can really make that work is if you also lend out money at high rates. And not being able to do that and generate the net interest margin that would come with that just means that you're not really ever going to be profitable. And I think where we sort of got hung up or where we maybe stopped kind of paying attention to this basic reality was... Over the last couple of years, when there was just no interest on the part of investors in trying to understand the viability of any of these models, it sort of seemed like, oh, yeah, why don't you start that and you start that and you start that. And I guess the optimistic way of looking at it would be that the largesse of fintech investors from 2020 to 2022 did allow for folks to build things that are in some cases becoming Infrastructure. So obviously, HM Bradley has announced they're pivoting to B2B and they're going to be, I think, sort of selling a white labelable version of their sort of product and technology stack to banks, which I actually think could be a very compelling offering for banks. Pedal, a while ago, perhaps seeing the end of the road coming, spun off Prism, which is a cash flow data and analytics provider that's sort of focused on being, I guess you could say, the FICO of the open banking stack. And maybe that's the way forward for them. So I think in a lot of cases, the runway that was afforded to these companies allowed for the development of some cool technology, but the actual B2C facing business, I don't know if you feel any different, but most of them that I saw had very, very long odds of ever sort of growing into a viable standalone business. Yeah, I think the HM Bradley one caught me by surprise. I mean, for a couple of reasons. One, I'll be honest, I wasn't, you know, following it super closely. Like, there are companies I follow super closely and, you know, watch every data point that comes out, whether, you know, it's if they're public, you know, earnings report or call report filings or whatever. Borrow, borrow, borrow. (laughs) So so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't super closely following H.M. Bradley, but my, you know, my perception and again, this is probably colored by the the anecdote that, you know, they had to pause onboarding at some point because, you know, they were getting too many deposits for their partner bank hatch and yes. you know, they had a wait list. And I was like, oh, OK, so it just sort of like the sense was like, yes, it's going well. Um, but I mean, to your point, if if the fundamental model is pay high yields for deposit, but then you're parking those deposits at a partner bank. And then you're getting, you know, presumably some share of that float or interest income, but you're passing some along to the consumer and then the bank obviously wants, you know, its share as well. And it it just becomes like oh well maybe this economic model you know isn't workable. I will well say- there's no there's no debit interchange was the other thing right because yeah. they cause those that customer segment they use cards obviously HM Bradley tried to launch a credit card but there was no like debit interchange which we've made fun of on this podcast before but like they didn't even have that to fall back on. True. I mean I guess in my initial immediate thought which is probably not exactly. Fair or meaningful was like, well, if HM Bradley can't make it work with, I think Zach said the average customer had like $25,000. I'm like, if they can't make it work, you know, how does like Chime make it work? But Mm -hmm. to be fair, the business model here is a bit different of, you know, how does Chime monetize and generate revenue versus what was HM Bradley trying to do? I do think there's another interesting point. I mean, we focused mostly on the fintech side itself, but there's another factor here which is increasingly, you know, major partner bank players are de-risking and pulling back. And they're doing that by sort of cherry picking. And again, it's not an irrational decision if you're at the bank, but cherry picking the programs that are the most significant to the bank's business model, the bank's P&L. So those that bring the most significant number of deposits, those that generate the most fee revenue, you know, and or those that generate the most lending opportunities and, you know, have a less burdensome compliance requirement, right? And so we've already seen Evolve do this. We don't need to go through that again. Coastal has also been de-risking. There's some coverage in the information. And if you look at Coastal, which is publicly traded, their filings, I think their number of fintech partners peaked in like June, 2022, and has actually been declining since then. And Blue Ridge, again, not surprising given the consent order, but Blue Ridge is also very cognizantly de-risking and saying explicitly, we are focusing on keeping the programs that bring us the most deposits. With these are my words, with the least compliance headache, and we don't want you know small average balances companies with a ton of accounts that you know aren't bringing a lot of deposits. And I don't think that that. I don't think this cycle is entirely done. I mean, you have contracts between either the partner banks and the fintechs directly, you know, and or intermediated through middleware platforms that have notice periods that have you know off ramps. So you know, in addition to the entire economic and funding piece that we talked through, there's also this other problem over here, which is like, hey, you guys who are getting off boarded from Evolve and Coastal and Blue Ridge and anywhere else you might not find a home to go to. That's right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's part and parcel of the same thing, right? Which is that um, whether it's VCs or it's partner banks, the, the basic exercise is the same, which is you have to look at all the companies out there, all the companies in your portfolio and basically decide which ones are worth doubling down on and which ones you should cut loose. And I think, you know, that's happening on both sides, honestly. And I think that, you know, smart partner banks and smart VCs are doing almost exactly the same exercise right now, which is evaluating the potential of these different programs. Obviously, partner banks look at it from more of a, how much revenue are you generating for me today versus the compliance headaches that you're causing. VCs have a little bit more of a future-oriented look and probably don't give a shit about compliance. But they're essentially looking at present and future viability and trying to figure out, okay, I've got a dwindling stack of chips in front of me. Which of these do I want to put down and double down on? And which ones do I sort of just want to walk away from? And I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if you're a fintech company that doesn't rise to the level of being sort of worth it, quote unquote, from a VC perspective or from a partner bank perspective, you just don't really have a lot of options, right? And I guess the other element to this, Jason, that'd be curious to get your take on is. I don't really see a whole bunch of like acquirers out there wanting to rescue a lot of these companies. And, you know, the, the whole M&A thing is really kind of a fascinating topic as a part of this, because, again, I think there are some really smart people who you'd want to sort of acquire. hire I do think there is some good technology or some good products that you might want to acquire as well. But there's also a lot of like, yeah, you know, and like, people who kind of came in, they took all the Lego blocks afforded to them by fintech infrastructure. They assembled them into something and slapped sort of a colorful debit card over the top of it. And they're like, this is the product. And, you know, how you sort of parse where there's actual value to be acquired and how you kind of figure out maybe where there's not as much value. Like to me, that's a really interesting question. So if you're one of these companies like option A would be, can we pivot into infrastructure or B2B or take some component that we've built ourselves that's worth selling to someone else? And if not, can we try to figure out a way for someone to acquire us? But again, those acquisitions are very hit and miss. I was pretty critical of, you know, Robinhood acquiring X1 as an example. And, you know, I think X1, when I looked at it, I didn't really see much that was that sort of unique. It was more sort of fancy marketing than anything else. But you know, clearly Robinhood saw it as sort of a quicker path to get into the credit card business. So I do think you'll see some of those, but I don't know. I mean, it, it almost feels like you have to position your company in a very different light to appeal to potential acquirers than you do to appeal to consumers, which is different than the light you have to sort of position yourself in to appeal to VCs or partner banks. So like, there's there's all of these potential different audiences that you can be trying to speak to. And the question is, which one are you effectively speaking to and how will that allow you to survive? We shouldn't understate the difficulty of making that pivot. I mean, having most of my career has been you know, doing consumer marketing, but going from marketing a consumer product to saying, oh, well, we're just going to sell tech to banks. I mean, it's, yeah. it's an entirely different thing, you know, different marketing strategy, different sales cycle. So, yeah, it's not something that you and I'm not suggesting that, you know, H.M. Bradley or all is thinking that, but it, it's certainly something that is going to require, I suppose, incremental capital and in the 13 million that they raised as well, as well as time to navigate that transition And and, you know, presumably they have a sense that there's some amount of demand or traction that enabled them to raise that additional round. But you look at some of the other examples in the space and going a little bit further back, right? Deserve, which originally started as a consumer credit card yeah. and then essentially pivoted to being infrastructure. So like card issuing as a service. Also Avant which spun off its like I'm loan out. origination. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah, so the yeah, yeah. loan origination system, which at one point during like the bubbly time was valued as highly as a billion. I suspect that's not still the case. I mean, I had no. some wins selling to maybe like regions and then, you know, a couple of other, you know, mid-tier banks, but it, it's not an easy transition to make. No, it's really not. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I think banking is going to end up kind of going to your point about like, where are we in this process and what's going to happen? I mean, My very sort of simplistic read is that banks and legacy bank technology vendors will end up hoovering up quite a bit of the value that's been created here with a few exceptions for standalones that sort of make it through. And I do think, I mean, there are very successful fintech infrastructure companies that are well past the point of having to worry about this. There are very Successful or at least large consumer-facing fintech companies that have sort of gone beyond this. I I was joking with someone else that like even if Chime wanted to be acquired, there's no one who could afford them anymore. Like they're outside the range of even like Chase looking at them and being like, yeah, they're worth what they want to get acquired for. Like some companies have reached sort of escape velocity and they're going to have to sink or swim on their own from an M and A perspective. But for those that haven't, my general prediction would be a lot of them are going to end up either dying or getting sort of sucked up by banks that have very stable business models that can afford to kind of go bargain shopping. Or we started to see this a little bit, the legacy bank technology vendors, whether it's the credit bureaus or the large core providers or Visa and MasterCard or whomever you want to name, who are going to come in and try to do a little bargain shopping on the infrastructure side. Yeah, I mean, one Last comment, building on that, and, and we can go on to the next one. But I mean, that was kind of the, uh, I guess, the cynical take on the worldview of the legacy vendors or legacy banks of, you know, they're in a good position to sit back, see what works, you know, yes. what resonates with consumers or SMBs or whatever, and you know, what doesn't work, and then either copy it, you yeah. know, just copy the features, which we have seen some of, you know, or Selectively acquire. I mean, you know, FIS Bond is a really good example of that, where it's like, okay, well, you know, we, FIS didn't build that capability for whatever reason. But, you know, if you wait long enough, you can go and acquire at what I had heard was quite a fire sale price. Yep. Yep. No, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. So um, it'll be interesting. Um, Somewhere Jason Henricks is listening to this and listening to us just sort of advise banks to sit back and wait and not worry. And his hair is on fire. So Jason, if you're listening, we're not necessarily advising that. But I do think in some respects, it is going to sort of end up working out that way. Jason, should we jump to our next story? Yeah. Are you going to like hulk out on the <laughs> your favorite topic? <laughs> So no, just just so people know, uh, Jason was the one who assembled did, the initial outline, that's, that's and true. in here, very meanly, I think there's a whole thing on credit building, my favorite topic. So, yeah, let's you know, let's do this one more time. Uh, <laughs> credit building, my absolute favorite topic. There has been a lot of stuff that's happened. This particular area of fintech just won't leave me alone. Apparently, so to recap some of the most recent things, obviously. This has been an active space for a while. We've had credit building products from Chime, from Varo, uh, more recently from Current. There's a whole sort of separate category of credit builder products that are focused on sort of helping consumers furnish sort of non-financial product repayment data to the bureaus, whether that's uh, reporting utility data or rental data. Very, very recently, in fact, last week, Regions Bank announced a partnership with Self, which is one of the companies, fintech companies, that was focused on rental reporting and uh, utility reporting. And so um, Regions and Self are going to be offering a service to Regions customers that costs about seven bucks a month that will help those consumers furnish utility and rental data to the credit bureaus if they're not already in order to improve their score. I also recently wrote about a company called Tomo Credit, that in 2019 launched a charge card focused on credit building. And the idea was similar to a Chime or a Varro to give people a sort of low limit secured card. Uh, in the case of Tomo, that actually reported data based on a seven day repayment cycle. So very, very quick payment cycles that in theory would build your, your credit score very, very fast. I don't particularly believe that statement overly. Um, And then recently, the reason I wrote about them on my newsletter was that they have launched a new product called Tomo Boost, which is quite a bizarre offering. It essentially eschews offering any type of financial product associated with the account and rather is just something where you pay as a consumer between $10 a month and $100 a month. To get access to a reported line, and I'm putting reported line in quotation marks because it's not an actual credit line, but rather is just a, I guess, a credit line that exists on paper for the purposes of reporting it to the credit bureaus that comes fully furnished with months and months of back history that instantly gets filled in at the bureaus. So as soon as you sign up for this service, For example, if you pay for the $100 a month version of the service, they will report a $30,000 line of credit to the credit bureaus with 24 months of on-time payment history immediately backdated into your report, which, as you might imagine, would stand uh, a great uh, chance of helping you improve your credit score across a number of different factors, ignoring, of course, the fact that that is not a real product and the data is being reported as completely fictitious. So I don't know, Jason, I'm kind of losing my mind, I think. I might have actually just hallucinated the whole Tomo thing at this point, because it does seem sort of unbelievable. But you've been watching from afar as I've been going crazy. What's your sort of take on this, this emerging landscape of uh, credit building products? I pulled up the website while you were describing it and i just when i read your newsletter specifically about the the tomo product i i just didn't know what to make of it i mean it it it, it basically <laughs> yeah. sounds like intentionally defrauding the bureaus and again yes. th- this you know despite being fairly familiar with the fair credit reporting act and and some of the other regulations here i really like could not comprehend where this fit in that universe of like how is it that you can just report something that is not actually a product that this person has and where you know where does the where does the regulation governing that sit which I'm 100% going to start asking all my lawyer friends after we finish recording yes. this? Yes. Um yes. I mean in my mind it it seems very weird that the bureau the major bureaus would would tolerate this given like their value prop should be, okay. you know, mostly accurate data. I know that people complain about sort of the the cl- clinical cleanliness or accuracy of the data, but generally speaking, you know, you would think that that is something that they want to ensure, given that their product is then selling that to lenders, and if they can't rely on that data, it is degrading the quality of the product that Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion are selling. And then on the consumer side, you know, if there's a, a risk of this, you know, not doing what it's marketed to do, then you start to run into potential (laughs) UDAP territory. Um, (laughs) This is probably the most aggressive version of this I've seen. And I feel a little bit bad picking on our friends at Bridget, given they just had an FTC settlement. But I got a marketing email from them that offered a credit building product which is not as aggressive as Tomo, but basically it has you apply for a loan, puts the loan into an escrow account, and then moves the money back from that escrow account to repay the loan. Yeah, I've seen those. But the money is coming from the escrow account, not from you. And so there's really like... There's no chance you're going to miss a payment. There's no chance you're going to miss a payment. Sorry, it says you have to pay a minimum of $1 a month towards repaying your loan and then the rest of it will come out of that escrow account and, and no. so it's like and you've made this point more cogently than i have but it's like well if there's no risk of you not paying how meaningful is this data as far as whether or not you'll know how to responsibly manage credit i mean the, the tomo thing is just bananas because it's like wait you're just inventing two years <laughs> of credit history that did not yeah. happen Yes. Yes. No, well, okay. So a couple things on this and just gavel me off, Jason, because yeah, like yeah, I could I, know, I could I scream about this into <laughs> the voice forever. But on the Tomo thing, they and and I was sort of surprised when I spoke to the co-founder and CEO of Tomo Credit that this was the comparison they made, but they talk about this product as a better version of Lexington Law. And for those who don't know, Lexington Law is one of the largest, if not the largest, credit repair service in the U.S. And credit repair is a nasty business because you're dealing with consumers that have damaged credit reports. So not not thin files or no files, not new to credit consumers, but people who have damaged credit reports that they need to fix. And it's a pretty predatory business area. Credit repair firms like Lexington Law get into... Massive tussles with regulators like the CFPB all the time. The CFPB has cracked down on the space multiple times in the past. It is very, very expensive. And usually, the way that they sort of frame out their services is pay us a monthly subscription fee, sometimes going up into the hundreds of dollars. So, I think from Tomo's perspective, they look at that and go, see, they're expensive. We're not expensive. And the service that you get is a combination of disputing inaccuracies on your report calling up creditors that you have and trying to basically get them to just let it go and like not report negative data to you on the bureaus, monitoring what you're doing and trying to give you advice on how to restructure your debt so that you can improve your credit score. So it's a whole bunch of services bundled into something that's designed to kind of get you to fix this. I guess if you're trying to build a better version of that, building a digital service that requires zero work and that just reports completely fictitious data to the bureau's is better in a sense, but it's also, as you said, it is defrauding the credit bureaus. I have no idea how the credit bureaus are allowing this or really any of these credit builder products to exist. My theory is that they kind of missed it the first time. Like They're like, oh yeah, we just want to sign up and do this thing. And they're like, oh sure, that's fine. And like it kind of got away from them before they could really realize what was going to happen. But I think the key problem for the bureaus and the larger lending universe is, and this is why fintech companies keep doing this, credit building is really popular with consumers. And so if you're looking at it just from a consumer-facing perspective and you're trying to figure out what should be on our roadmap, what's going to keep consumers opening our app and being engaged and continuing to pay us money, credit building is like a really good offering. Like I remember talking to Current and they said credit building was the number one request from their users for like what the new feature product was that they wanted. So like, I think that's legitimately true. The problem is, and you made this point very well, if you go to consumers and say, we can give you an easy button. And the CEO of Tomo told me this, she's like, changing consumers behavior is really hard. So instead of doing that, what we want to do is just help them automatically without them having to do any work. I totally get that, right? Consumers want that. FinTech companies want to offer that. The problem is, as a reflection of your willingness to repay, automating something that doesn't require any behavioral change, there's no value in that signal at all. And I know for a fact, having talked to a bunch of lenders about this, that savvy lenders like the Capital Ones and JP Morgan Chases of the world, they are already screening out these trade lines, or in some cases, actively discounting or punishing consumers that have these trade lines in their reports because they view it as adverse selection. If you're trying to build your credit using these methods, you're a higher risk than someone who doesn't do this. That is actively hurting these consumers. right? And so to your point about UDAP, I do think the CFPB is going to get involved here, probably from a UDAP perspective and certainly from a knocking on the door of the credit bureaus and saying, what the hell are you guys doing? Because this is ultimately bad for consumers. It's leading them to a place where they're going to apply for credit thinking that you know, I'm going to go in and be able to get this car with this loan at this interest rate. And then the lender going, yeah, no, we can't approve you. Or this is the best we can do from a pricing perspective. And they go, well, I thought I had a 720 FICO score. And then the lender's going to have to go, yeah, you do. But our underwriting algorithm says you're not approved for this. And so that's just going to be the reality. And I think the more we drive consumers to that place, the worse off everyone is going to be. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, in I understand the the impetus to want to offer this feature. Yes. But then as it becomes increasingly widespread and increasingly like aggressive in the structure of what that is. So it's like, okay, like the way that Chime and Vero do it, it's like you're setting aside money kind of into like, a, you're essentially prepaying the bill and then using the card and that gets reported. You know, the sort of Bridget, you know, takes it to a sort of different level where it's like, oh, you're basically just generating a ghost trade line by paying a dollar. But I guess you're like technically still doing something. And then this Tomo thing is really just next level. Also, I am not sure I would want to compare my product to Lexington Law. I mean, the you already said this, but it's like the credit repair space is probably one of like the grossest, scabbiest, like corners totally. of subprime slash like low-income consumer financial services. And actually, in fact, while you're talking, uh, this joked my memory, it's like the TSR, another piece of regulation a lot of people probably have not heard of, the telemarketing sales rule, prohibits credit repair services from charging until they demonstrate they achieve the results that they said that they were going to. And, and Lexington uh, Law got in trouble for this recently, yeah. And so, to your point, it's like a lot of what they will do or used to do, but they would they would just go and dispute everything, which would generally create this temporary pop in the score while the bureaus are investigating. You know, try to get the money from the person, and then eventually the bureau would be like, "Oh no, like whatever, this bankruptcy is legit. We're not taking it off." You're... And, and so it's yeah. I think it is an area of you know, consumer financial services that is probably in need of some attention. I'm sure somebody could do something cool with like generative AI. I do not know if... Tomo is working on that, I can (laughs) tell you that. (laughs) I do not know if just generating essentially meaningless data and reporting it is is really (laughs) the avenue um, that I would take in this. And setting aside the consumer harm standpoint, this feels like a field day for synthetic identity fraudsters. Oh, yeah. No, I totally agree with that. And it's, uh, I mean, like, even I, I, jo- I made that joke when uh, Experian launched, because Experian's big into like credit building and sort of consumer facing offerings these days as well. And uh, obviously, as a bureau, they try, I think, to be a little more like we only want to fill our bureau with like good data. So they focus more on like utilities and rent and that stuff. But even they launched a product called Experian Go which allows consumers to initiate the process of creating a credit file. And even that one, I sort of joked when that first came out that like, boy, fraudsters from a synthetic identity fraud are going to love this tool if they can game it. And so I completely agree. I mean, there's a huge fraud angle to this. And then I think the last just element of it that I want to mention before we move on is you tend to see credit building, I think, as like a shortcut for delivering value to users. But it's a very quick path from doing that to kind of sliding further and further down the path of just taking shortcuts and not doing the right thing. And using Tomo as an example, the other part of the Tomo story is their consumers are really not happy right now. So Tomo customers are complaining across pretty much every channel online that you can possibly find. There's a Facebook group that's been organized to help sort of uh, try to channel all of these concerns into a productive way, but people's cards are being closed. They're having a difficult time canceling their Tomo Boost subscriptions when it's not delivering the benefits that they thought it would, which again, harkens back to the FTC and Bridget. You have to make it easy for people to cancel. Can't can't mess up with the Rosca. (laughs) Can't mess up. Yeah, there's another little uh, obscure rule that you need to follow. So I think it's part and parcel of this larger issue of if you skirt the way that things are supposed to be done because you're like, ah, you know, that's not important. We're trying to create value. We're innovating. We're disrupting. You know, we are better than the other people in the space. And again, that goes back to the Lexington law thing. Like if your defense is, well, they're worse. That's a terrible, terrible defense. And, you know, I think in fintech, we just need to be better than that. And I think credit building is really sliding into a bad space in that way. All right. Let's leave it there. You've you've hulked out. How much time do we have left? What should we do next? Uh, I think we have time for maybe uh, hitting just a couple quick stories, and then let's do um, Can't Let It Go. All right, let's do that. My quick story is this caught me by surprise when it came out, and I don't know if I was just not paying attention or if it really was a surprise to everybody that the Federal Reserve Board is proposing to lower debit card swipe fees only for covered institutions, so those with over $10 billion in assets. You know, I'll admit that, you know, when Durban was passed and the Fed was originally formulating its formula to govern this, I was not even working in financial services. So there there are some interesting pieces of the history here that I actually did not know and learned while reading through some of the analysis on this. Specifically, that one of the unintended consequences of the original Durban amendment was that it became more expensive for merchants to process small transactions. Before it passed, networks would give preferential pricing, basically a discount for a small ticket, think like 10 bucks, in order to encourage merchants to accept cards and do this transition from everyone paying with cash to people preferring debit. And once you know, once Durban passed, sure, it became the ceiling, but it also became the floor. And so I always use the example of like the New York bodega, because it's like, okay Mm -hmm. if you're going in there to buy a Gatorade and like whatever, a bagel, you know, that transaction is now more expensive than it was before Durban. Obviously, you know, big banks unhappy about this. It's estimated that it's going to significantly, you know, reduce their interchange income. You know, I, I found it very curious. And I heard your episode with Kia, I think, talking about this already. You know, they're like, oh, competition will take care of any of these increases, which I had a good laugh when I read that. But but what did? What, what was your quick take? What did you and Kia think on this? Yeah, I mean, uh, Kia and I tried not to completely lose our minds about this, but it's absurd. I mean, really, it's it makes no sense. It completely contradicts all of our experience. And I, I was shocked when the the Fed included that in their little memo about, well, you know, it's possible that prices might go up, but we think competition will take care of that. It's like, no, like, there have been numerous, numerous studies that have shown not just in the US, but around the world, that when you cap these fees, the extra money goes into merchants pockets. There are some exceptions in specific categories of merchants or specific geographies where there might be a little more competition. But Competition drives prices down regardless of what else you do. The question is just, what margin are you giving merchants to play around with here? And I don't know. I mean, I find the overall discussion around this to be really frustrating because the reality is that kind of reminds me of the, the student lending thing a little bit where it's like, it's framed as this is unfair to all merchants and we need to fix this. When the reality is the companies that are driving this and that benefit disproportionately from it are Amazon and Walmart, Walmart. <laughs> and Amazon yeah. and Target and a few yeah. others. Like it's these big box retail stores that do massive, massive volumes and that have teams of people that are only focused on optimizing costs around payment acceptance. Those companies care. Everyone else doesn't really care that much. And I, I don't think you made a really good point about that bodega like they want the discounts for small ticket items. Like they want a sort of card ecosystem where issuers are trying to get them to accept these payments, which is also good for consumers because it gives them more choice. So I find all of the messaging around this really bizarre. And the only other thing I would just toss out there is, and I haven't dug deeply into this, but apparently there are some sort of legal shenanigans happening behind the scenes, which maybe is what precipitated the Fed to look at this because technically this is a requirement under the Durban amendment that every two years they were supposed to be evaluating this Oops. and keeping the cost low. And it's like, oh yeah, since, uh, since 2012, we haven't really been doing that at all, but now we're going to do that. So I think what happened behind the scenes is someone with some sympathy towards merchants found a legal avenue to sort of prod the Federal Reserve to do this. I don't think absent that the Fed was really going to do much here, nor do I think they should have. So it's kind of absurd. It's sort of the legacy of Durban continuing to sort of haunt all of us a bit. So great. Thank you. The ghost of Durban past. Okay. One more quick one. (laughs) Yeah. One more quick one. So um, I know you wrote about this. I also wrote about this, but Plaid is now a consumer reporting agency, which is very exciting. I guess I should say technically Plaid has set up a subsidiary company that is completely legally separate from regular Plaid that we all know and love that is now being regulated as a consumer reporting agency. The gist here is that for a long time, Plaid very vociferously argued that it did not need to be a consumer reporting agency, that it was just dumb pipes transmitting data from one party to another. And If those parties wanted to use that data to make lending decisions, that was their responsibility, not Plaid's. So we don't need to be a CRA. However, and I think this was fairly predictable, we've talked about building the volcano and sort of, I guess, building down for the layers of the volcano. Lending and doing more value-added services around lending was always a direction that I think Plaid was going to go. There wasn't much room to go any further in that direction in terms of providing Attributes or scores, or doing any type of what uh, the FCRA calls assembling or evaluating of the data for the purposes of making a lending decision without becoming a consumer reporting agency. So, Plaid uh, took that step. According to Plaid and the folks I've talked to there, there's a huge amount of sort of uh, existing interest within their customer base for help with lending use cases. I think, particularly for. Either smaller banks or less sophisticated fintech companies that don't necessarily want to do all of the building and assembling and evaluating of analytics on top of cash flow data for lending, Plaid will now be able to help them with that. So we don't know exactly what those products look like, but um, this was a step I think we sort of all saw coming. What was your take on it, Jason? Yeah, I mean, the it's a logical move, right? Particularly given you know, ten thirty three ever so slowly. Rolling along the tracks towards uh finalization. And and not that I, you know, foresee any risk of plaid's core business of facilitating data movement, you know, being particularly disrupted. I mean, they have a pretty good foothold in that space. But, you know, to your point, this will ask them. I really wish they they had drawn something of the size of volcano that would be more logical and easy to discuss. But yes, Yes, as as they are moving down the volcano, you know, this is a logical next step. And, and, you know, in addition to other things that I think get less coverage, like their identity services, which was via the acquisition of Cognito, you can see them sort of beginning to put together that sort of full suite of services. And, And even if, you know, some of these capabilities exist elsewhere, And, you know, we talked about Pedal earlier in the spinoff Prism, a little bit different, not a CRA, but it does provide a score based on the transaction data. Plaid has a pretty significant advantage in the sense that, you know, I won't say every bank and fintech already works with them, but a lot of them do. And, you know, believe it or not, purely from like a vendor onboarding, vendor management process, like there's a bias to using vendors that you already work with because it's easier and faster particularly for bigger banks that have more rigorous due diligence and third-party risk management processes. So, yep. so to the extent that you know somebody is comparing, well, I already work with Plaid and they offer this thing, or here's some other company over here that I've never worked with you know, there's a bit of a bias there to working with a company that you already have a business relationship with. So yeah, no, I agree with that. And I, I think just to put a final point on that, the um, the interesting thing for those companies that are considering using it is if you're going to reorient what you're doing around consumer permission data access, right? It's so like, hey, we want to do lending. We want to include cash flow data to be able to do that, which means we're going to need to get at some point in the onboarding application process, we're going to need to capture consumer consent, right? So to a degree, if you're like a bank that's thinking about this, you have to kind of rebuild your application process around getting consumer consent, which you've never had to do before in a credit bureau world. And if you're going to do that, I think the argument that Plaid would make is, well, why not take full advantage of doing that, right? So in addition to getting consumer permission for getting cash flow data for underwriting, you should also capture consumer permission for, Identity verification. And you should also use this data to make the payment process, both distributing funds and collecting payments from the consumer easier, which Plaid can do from a open banking payments perspective. And maybe you want to keep some type of persistent connection with this consumer over time to be able to monitor their cash flow so that if it's a credit card, for example, you can get a, an early indicator if there's any disruptions to their cash flow where you might want to lower their credit limit or engage in some type of pre-collections activity. So selling the whole life cycle of value for open banking through that one integration with Plat, I think is, to your point, definitely an advantage they're going to bring to it. Um, Jason, before we get to Can't Let It Go... This is not really a can't let it go so much as something I feel just compelled to mention. but you saw the relatively extensive reporting from The Wall Street Journal about the FDIC, correct? I surely did both the the first sort of explosive story and there was also a follow-up piece on Chair Grutenberg and his his temper. Yes, yes, his uh, apparently he has a bit of a temper. So for those who haven't read it, the reporting from The Wall Street Journal, Basically, just outlined a very disturbing and sounds like long-standing culture of harassment and sexism and just sort of rampant unprofessional behavior at the FDIC. And in particular, behavior that has driven a lot of women out of roles at the FDIC. And I I, you know, I don't think there's really much analysis to do on this. I'm really glad the reporting came out. And I think my only comment on it, Jason, is that. An FDIC that drives women away from working there is a poorer FDIC, and the overall banking ecosystem is worse off for that. So I I hope they get this addressed. I'm glad there's more scrutiny on it. What was your just super quick take on it? I thought it was really weird that they have a hotel. (laughs) That was so weird. That was so weird. Why does that? I mean, I guess it's cheaper if you always are having people come into town for trainings and whatnot. Don't ask me why that detail particularly stuck out to me among all of the other. It was weird. It was weird. And apparently the hotel is, yeah, like really ground zero for bad behavior. Yeah, I mean, it's always really unfortunate. And I mean, yes, you know, you remember that these people, whether they work at a government agency or senior roles or whatever, are people and they may make bad yeah. decisions and, you know, generate not great outcomes both for themselves and for the agencies they they represent. And I mean, I think it's it's unfortunate because it's a, it's a distraction to the rest of the work I mean, it needs to be resolved and it's a serious problem, but then it's also a distraction to other like serious work that needs to happen and probably degenerates into some like partisan committee fight. So... Yeah, no. uh, Republicans in the Senate are already all over that, and from my perspective, it's like I could give a shit what the politics are. Like, just get it fixed. Like, this is this is gross. So, with that, let's do I guess slightly more cheerful. I can't (laughs) let it go. Topic. So, uh, Jason, you go first. So, I mean, you and I both have like a long, humorous fascination with all things crypto and NFTs. So, my can't let it go is there was recently a board ape yacht club ape fest in hong kong and the morning after this party so i guess if you own a board ape you you got to go in for free although you still have to fly to hong kong which i you know not cheap (laughs) and a number of attendees complained of severe pain and burning sensations in their eyes vision problems and skin irritation which apparently was caused by exposure to uv light that had been set up incorrectly in this sort of rave venue. So I feel like we've reached like the logical culmination of NFTs, where it's actually just like a rave conducted in some horrifically unsafe manner. Well, it is there is a and obviously it's not uh, funny. Everyone I think recovered, but yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, the, yeah. the end of the story is everyone recovered. It was a temporary thing, but there is an amusing alternative universe where like everyone who had the laser eyes for their profiles and had board ape pictures with like laser eyes. Is walking around in the morning, sort of hungover and unable to see anything. And so, yeah, no, it is much in the same way that Tomo is sort of the logical endpoint for credit building in a fintech context. This is definitely the logical endpoint for NFTs, uh, among other things. So, um, no, that is an amazing story. My can't let it go is slightly more, I don't know, nuanced. I'll do it fast though. It's you did you read the the techno optimism manifest that Mark Andreessen wrote? You read it, right? I, no? I made myself not read it. I'll read it after this. <laughs> I just I knew it was gonna make me angry. Like anything, yeah. anything that is this is why I tried to skip all the open eye, eye stuff as well. Anything that right. is like San Francisco, VC, yeah. like arguing about, like, also with the whole Asia summit, like, any of the dialogue around that i'm just like it's probably gonna make me mad if i read it and i don't live there and i'm not involved in it so i just like i saved myself the frustration oh well you were smart to do it because i i read it and it, it did frustrate me a lot and the thing that was hard about it was there were definitely points in it where i was like oh yeah that makes sense but then there were other points where it was like anyone who doesn't believe fully into the positive future and benefits of technology is the enemy. And like listing out all of the different groups of people who are enemies. And in particular, one group that you and I uh, belong to, at least in a sort of generalized sense, was the media. And I hear that a lot where it's like, oh, well, the media hates tech. And it's like, okay, no, you know, that's not true. I love technology. In fact, I can't think of a group of people who are more sort of addicted to smartphones and Twitter than the media. So like, clearly, like we love technology, but the idea that like technology is universally good and we should just not worry about anything relating to technology. And this does bring us all the way back to the beginning of the episode with the open AI stuff. Like, don't call me a decelerationist, which I don't even know what that means, just because i do think it's okay if we flag some potential concerns about creating an artificial superintelligence that might kill us all like even if there's only like a microscopic chance that that happens it's probably worth having someone pay attention to it and that doesn't make me like a luddite trying to smash up looms and prevent the march of progress so i i would i would wish for more nuance on this subject but it seems destined to not be something that i'm going to get yeah i've opted out from engaging in those conversations <laughs> Smart. That's yep. very smart. That's very smart. Well, um, we will leave this conversation here. Jason, have a wonderful Dutch Thanksgiving. Give us a full report on it next time we speak. And uh, until then, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.